Um, I think that's part of the fun of it too, to see something off Broadway and to know that you know, you're right there and we can't hide from you, though sometimes we might like to. I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find a list of upcoming guests and reserve tickets for our live recordings. All tickets are free. At the end of each podcast, we provide an opportunity for our audience to ask questions. If you can't make a recording, you can submit a question via Twitter. Just tell us your question and who it's for using the hashtag AskLiveAtTheLortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. Please welcome my guest, Anne Harada. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. I'm honored and thrilled that you're sitting here. I'm a very big fan. Thank you. So we typically start the podcast with what you're currently working on, which is Emoji Land, which is playing at the Duke on 42nd uh, through March. Will you tell us a little bit about the show and how it came to you and the role you play? Well, Emoji Land is sort of an exploration of what would happen if the emojis in your phone came to life and were an actual society inside your phone. And using that analogy, um, the writers have constructed a world in which each emoji sort of has its place and much like our society, are threatened when a new update comes along and brings more new emojis into the world. And sort of like what happens when when they are confronted with something that they're not expecting. And I play the most famous emoji, I like to think, or at least the most used emoji, <laughs> the pile of poo emoji. And as such, I can't or don't interact very much with everybody in emoji land. But if you wander into my bathroom, you might get some advice. And, and that's sort of what happens. I feel funny that everybody else are in these, all these big scenes and I'm just not. <laughs> and they're like, well, it's sort of weird. You wouldn't be there. Like, there's no real reason for you to be out in the world. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Eventually, you do interact with... Yes, with Smiling Face with Smiling Eyes, who's known as Smize. Right. She wanders into the restroom at this big ball that the prince and princess are giving in Emoji Land. Yes. And you give a nice big piece of advice. Yes. <laughs> you come on in, in Act Two, mm -hmm. and we were talking a little bit before about you know having some time to yourself back backstage and to kind of do what you want because you're really not on for an hour or so. Oh, at least. Oh, well, oh. I have to be on in the very first. Right. I'm in the very first song, like I'm in the second line of the song, so I actually have to be ready really early. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a whole wig call of like who gets their wigs put on, and I'm like second. <laughs> I'm like this is ridiculous because <laughs> then I don't come on again for until Act Two. The costumes are incredible. Oh, they're amazing. They're really, and your wig is is really just great. the designers for Emoji Land have really outdone themselves. I think common themes with the show. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about. Not necessarily what's going on with this country. I mean, obviously, we, you and I could be here for hours talking about that. But the parallels and what happens with the update and the firewall. Can you talk a little bit about that? When the update happens, new emojis are introduced to the existing emojis in Emoji Land. And our hero, or our, our protagonist, Nerdface, is one of those emojis. The new ones. And so we sort of follow his path trying to navigate the new world of Emoji Land. He falls in love, he tries to make friends, people laugh at him, you know, he's trying to figure out like how to live in this world. And he befriends Skull, who unfortunately, because he is death, is trying to come up with a plan to completely obliterate Emoji Land, mm -hmm. but sort of talks Nerdface into helping him come up with a virus that will infect their world. and. That happens, and then Nerdface has to figure out how to save Emoji, save Emoji Land, how to reverse what he's done. But what's interesting is that when the idea of this virus is introduced, the princess gets very nervous about it because Prince, who's sort of her rival, was one of the new emojis. And so she wants to 
imprison everybody who could be a threat. They'd come up with this idea to build a firewall to protect Emoji Land, and the construction worker is very much against it. And her partner is the police officer who is duty-bound to support it. And so they have a fight and, you know, things, I mean, like, basically, it's all about how personal relationships are affected by, you know, this conflict within, like, shall we hide ourselves behind something or shall we open ourselves up to the world? The conflict between construction worker and police officer, they're a lesbian couple. Yes. And how construction worker is told by the princess to build this wall. Yes. The concept of emoji, like I said before, when I went to see it, I thought it was just going to be a lot of fun and a lot of fluff. But it, it starts to hit you because these themes that are going on in the country now are all within your phone. Right. <laughs> which you don't expect. Well, that's what I think is so great about this show. There's that aspect of it that is just so fun and campy. It's so beautifully designed. It's, it's, an amaz- it's amazing to watch. Yeah. And yet there's also this sort of darker underbelly to it, a more serious side. What do we owe each other in a society? Police woman and construction worker have a conflict because it's police woman's job to make this wall happen and to make construction worker build it. And construction worker looks on this as a personal betrayal Mm -hmm. of their relationship and what they're all about. And so it becomes very personal. And I feel like all the relationships in Emoji Land sort of become very personal in, in the sense that like people, you know, you can have falling out with your partner. You can fall in love and, you know, you can have people who are going to take you down a, a wrong path for their own needs. And it's just, you know, it's like, it's like any other story, except there are emojis in your phone. Right. I also took it one step further. You, you have these archetypes yes. of, you know, pile of crap, um, mm-hmm. smiling, someone's always smiling all the time, the kissy girl, right. the, you know, the guy who's... Cool guy with cool sunglasses. Guy, right, the death, you know, someone right. someone that's always down in the dumps and is always thinking about the worst and, and death. Your archetype, you're, never, you're always supposed to stay in that lane, but Correct. that's not true life. I mean, everybody has everything to them. So it, it's a nice light shined on that. Oh, well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that's tr- definitely true. Are you enjoying it? Are you having oh, a great time? Oh, very much so, yeah. It would be really hard not to enjoy that show. (laughs) Everybody in it is so amazing. I think you'll agree. The vocals are outstanding. They're incredible. One person, you know, after another, just turning it out in a very impressive way. And night after night, I mean, it's for me to be able to watch it and experience it. It's really lovely. Can you watch from offstage? Do you? Yes, I can watch from offstage. I don't have the greatest view, but we have monitors and things. In the night I was there, Josh and Leslie, as I mentioned before, um, I don't know how much was improvised or whatever, but to me, being an audience member and, and watching, I think it was the second preview, Josh say this line so brilliantly that Leslie started to giggle a little, and then the audience went crazy. And we all didn't stop laughing for so long. You guys had to hold for quite a while. That's the fun of it. Oh, yeah. Because it... You're not taking yourself so seriously. Right, and it's also a very intimate theater. Oh, yeah. It's literally, you can see everything going on with us and in our faces. <laughs> so um, I think that's part of the fun of it, too, to see something off-Broadway and to know that you know, you're right there and we can't hide from you, though sometimes we might like to. So you, you grew up in Hawaii. I did. Big claim to fame for you is you went to school with Barack. Yes, he was two years ahead of me. We did not interact. You were not friends. We were not friends. My mother worked at the Bank of Hawaii with his grandmother. Oh. And they were friends. Okay. And so she was a very early adopter of the concept of Barack Obama. (laughs) I miss him. Yeah, well, who doesn't? (laughs) When did you, you went to school for theater? I did. I went to Brown University, which at the time did not have a kind of professional training program. Right, it's different now. Yeah, now they're affiliated with Trinity Rep. You know, at the time, it was basically the theater department was the bastard child of the English department, and they did four main stage shows, and they there was a, a student group that did shows in a little black box, and then there was one musical that was written by the students every year, 
and those were the things you could do. That was it. But you could that have a theater it. degree. It was oh, just absolutely. Not, it was just part of the English department. Well, it, it had just left the English department. It really didn't know what it was yet. You could absolutely have a theater degree, and I did. And at Brown, it's extremely easy to double major, so I also majored in English and American literature. Because you create your own curriculum of some kind there. Yes, you absolutely can. Yeah. Almost everybody double majors at Brown because there aren't any, what is the core requirements? Right. You know what I mean? So when you graduated, did you come right to New York? I did. A Broadway producer who had gone to Brown had contacted the department in my senior year going, is there anybody who wants to come be an intern <laughs> in my office? And I was like, I do. So I went and had an interview with her and then uh, started work in the fall, basically answering phones and typing her letters and things like that. And I got to work on this Broadway show, Slide of Hand which is a thriller written by John Peelmeyer, who wrote Agnes of God. Yeah. And so I got to find out what it was like to produce a show on Broadway. And I realized very quickly I did not want to be a producer. Oh, but so originally your thought was, I'm not going to work on stage, I'm going to work. Well, I just didn't know. Okay. You know, at Brown, it wasn't like I was one of the star actors at all. I mean, I was in shows, but it was not... When you're in class with Laura Linney... It's really hard to convince yourself, like, I'm a really good actor. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, she's amazing, and I'm okay. You know, it's like that. Mm-hmm. But then I got to New York and realized not everybody had to be Laura Lenny, or could be. You know, that you didn't have to have necessarily that level of talent to mm-hmm. work. <laughs> you learned that lesson pretty quickly, it yes. sounds like. Yes, because I got to watch auditions for Sleight of Hand. And once I got in that room and saw professional actors... And I was like, oh, well, I'm as good as her. I can do that. I can do that. (laughs) You know, like, maybe I'm not as good as him, but she, you know, totally. You know, like, like, you don't know. Mm -hmm. When you're in college, you don't know how good you are compared to anybody. And you don't know if you can do it professionally. So you made the decision to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I don't want to produce. I don't want to. Oh, yeah. No, I made a decision that, like, once I was in the producer's office, I wanted to work in a producer's office because I wanted to know what all the parts were. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I figured the producer will be in touch with every single aspect of a production. And I just knew that I wanted to work in the theater, that I needed to work in the theater. And it kind of didn't matter to me what job that was. If I had figured out that I could be a you know, wardrobe mistress mm-hmm. or a dresser, I could have gone that way. If, it, if I sold tickets or swept the floor, anything, I, it totally didn't matter to me. I just knew that I wanted to work in the theater. It was smart. I mean, it was a smart move to do this so I can learn about every aspect of the theater. Right, because at that point, because I didn't know if I was capable of performing professionally, I just thought, well, if I work for a producer, I'll be able to sort of stick my foot in all of these different things and meet people who will help me, you know, casting. I mean, there are all kinds of aspects of the theater that you kind of just don't know how to do or get into or know anything about. And I just thought, well, I'll learn them. And I did. Like, you know, and the people that I met working for her helped me along in my journey. You know, I met Meg Simon, who was the casting director of that play. I would literally go and, you know, take her notes and whatever. And then she came to see me do a cabaret and she thought, well, I'll bring her in for M. Butterfly. And that's how I got my first Broadway show. Wow. It's never like the way you think it's gonna happen. (laughs) Yeah, but you seem to have set it, and maybe you didn't do this, but you set it up, you set yourself up for success. I guess so. Without knowing it. But I didn't know what the path was gonna be when I started. So you did a cabaret, Meg came to see it. And then she brought me in for, like, somebody was leaving M. Butterfly and they needed a replacement, and I got it. What was that like, stepping out from producer's office to all of a sudden, the next week, or et cetera, you're on the Broadway stage? Well, it was unbelievable. (laughs) You know, I literally thought, well, I have no idea how this happened, but I'm grateful and I'm going to try. That play, too, I thought was so stunning. Mm. And I admit... David Wong in college. He was a friend of my friend from college, and I remember painting my friend's room with him. Do you know what I mean? Like, so he didn't seem like so amazing far away, but I knew the whole idea of being on Broadway was, seemed so far away and, and not realistic. So that once it all sort of fell into place, I just thought, oh, okay, so there's no, <laughs> there's no really one path. 
You know, we all have are going to get here in a different way, and that's totally fine. And there was no guarantee that I could even do it. I mean, you know, like, I just I showed up, and I did the rehearsal, and then they put me on stage, but I just thought like, well, if this doesn't work out, they'll just fire me, you know what I mean? Like, you just don't know. That's a great attitude to have, though. I mean, to look at it that way, I mean, it wasn't life or death. It was... Oh, no. It was an amazing thing that happened to me. And then, let's see if I can. And I sort of feel like that's my whole life. Sir Cameron McIntosh says, I'd like you to play Madame Tenardier in Les Mis. And you go, that sounds great to me. I don't know if I can, but I'll show up. You know what I mean? Just showing up is... Showing up is, is, the, whole is the whole thing, thing for me. And just trying, you know, and not limiting yourself. I don't know. I don't know what it would be like. You have to say yes, that's all. You just have to say yes. So from M. Butterfly, mm -hmm. you went after that. Did you stay with it till closing? Yep. Then after that, where did you go? I think Mikado Inc. was the next job. It was a... A, version, a, um, a new version of the Mikado out at Paper Mill, and I met some of my very closest friends in that show. And so, you know, it was great. I basically just became like, you know, somebody who went on auditions. What's the audition process for you? I mean, you seem to have a very effort kind of thing. I'm gonna go in and do my thing, and they like me, they right. like me. that's me now. Back oh, then, okay. I was trying very, very hard to be like everybody else. Talk about that, I think there was a time in the 90s when I feel like all the girls had a similar dress, and we all had the same shoes. We'd all show up to the audition like in a Laura Ashley <laughs> <laughs> dress with really puffy sleeves, and we'd all have our character shoes on in the collar. Mm. We'd have our character shoes on, and we looked ridiculous. I mean, we were all the same. Like, we were trying so hard to be the same. I don't know why. It's like when everybody took their headshot and we all had like a denim shirt. I mm -hmm. was stupid. Um, <laughs> I was trying so hard to be like everybody else that I really wasn't concentrating on what it was interesting about me. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't have a skill set like most people in the musical theater. I didn't dance. I'd never taken dance in school or anything. But I could sing, so I would get through that half of the audition, and then I would dance, and then I would be immediately cut. So I tried to improve that. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't good. I wasn't good at all. <laughs> I didn't re what I didn't realize was that that wasn't going to be the way I was going to get a job. Mm -hmm. The way I was going to get a job is to be interesting enough for a creator to go, like, I want her in the show somehow. And then, you know, it would sort of work out. How long did it take for you to learn that lesson, that you're not uh, going to show up in that Laura Ashley dress, you're going to dress like Anne dresses, you. right? Mm -hmm. And how, was it a process of a few years, or did it? Oh my God, yes. Right. You know, yeah. I would say till I was 40. Oh. <laughs> okay. I don't know that so I was. So it took a long time. Yeah, it took a long time. Um, I, don't say, I don't think I was really comfortable in my own skin until then, which is when I got Avenue Q, which is sort of when I went, oh, I get it. I'm interesting because I'm me, not because I'm good at the things everybody else is good mm -hmm. at. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you feel that, you know, as a character actor, as somebody that maybe is playing a sidekick mm -hmm. or somebody, um, you know, the comedic part, were you trying to fit into a leading lady kind of role or you just... I was just trying to fit into something. I yeah. was just trying to make myself useful as something in your show. You know, I really wasn't sure what that was. I seemed to be getting cast in kind of like the charactery, belty, sidekicky parts, which is fine. And I was very comfortable doing that and I love doing that. And I'd always been attracted to those parts. I knew I wasn't an ingenue, though I did try. You know, I. That's um, interesting, yeah. You know, but like it's sort of like because I was young, but I really wasn't right. I had to wait. I had to grow up to fall into my type and to finally feel comfortable. It's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, and a lot of people drop out because it's hard to be rejected for a very long time, especially when you're young. It is. And you kind of need encouragement to keep going. When yeah. you're a young character actor, too, oh, and yeah. you're not really fitting into no. anything until you get to maybe your 40s or even 50s, right. you have to be very patient. Yes. And, you know, me for man, I just was, I, I can't anymore. It just, it was just too painful. Right. So. I totally get that. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was because I was just so convinced I was good. 
Nobody else seemed to think so, but I was convinced I was. And I just kept thinking like, if I can just stick it out, you know, I would, I would get enough encouragement, I would get cast in shows, you know, regionally or small off-Broadway shows. You know, the Vineyard Theater I worked so many mm -hmm. times because just Doug Abel saw something in me that I didn't even know what he saw in me, but he would cast me in these shows. And I would just be like, somebody cares, I'm gonna keep going, I believe. And I don't really know why. It's just that weird thing in your head, like, no, I can, I really can, I think I really can do this. It takes an incredible amount of endurance. Yeah, and yeah. Passion to and just keep it alive. Delusion, you know, whatever it is, you know, you don't know. I, but it's like I said to my freshman advisor from Brown, actually showed up at Emojiland by surprise one night, and I just looked at him and went, I just don't know why you're seeing me in this play. <laughs> There's so many other amazing actors from Brown who are out there right now doing things. Why did you come to see me in Emojiland? Wow. And he was like, Oh, I saw that article about you in TDS. And I didn't know you were doing something, so I just thought I would come. And I was like, did you ever think I was going to be an actor? And I don't think he did, you know. I don't think any of them thought I was going to be an actor. When they wrote my, you know, they write recommendations, mm -hmm. uh, my recommendation said, she's very enthusiastic. <laughs> and she will be successful at whatever she chooses to pursue because she, you know, cares. And I thought, that's it. It's like, I... I'm very enthusiastic, yeah. and I don't listen to anybody who tells me you can't. I only listen to myself when it comes to that sort of thing, and that saved me. You know, it's a your, great attribute for your gut. You know, like yeah. your gut tells you you should or you shouldn't, and I really try not to listen to other people saying you shouldn't do that part, you shouldn't go in for this, you can't do that. I'm like, well, maybe you know, like, and what do you think? And then I sort of toss it around and I go like, all right, that is for me or it's not for me. I admire the way you look at it. What was it? I, I usually say this to the end, but I'm fascinated. The 20, 25 year old that would prep for her audition. And as opposed to you just said yesterday or the day before you had two auditions. What's the difference now of, of what you know as opposed to then? What's an audition like for you today? And what was it like then? Well, um, there were different kinds of auditions because they were for TV and film. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to wear my Laura Ashley dress. <laughs> I'm glad you still have it. Um, and the character shoes. And the character shoes. You know, most actors try to dress a little bit like the character that they're going in for because people are so ridiculously unable to mm -hmm. visualize. visualize things. But the difference was that, and this sounds awful, but I don't care. You know, it's like I'm... I'll do my best, I'm trying my hardest, I'm gonna work on the material, but ultimately, if you don't cast me, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but that is, that is the actual way to go into an audition. Right. Not that you don't care, but if I don't get it, it's okay. No, it's not gonna change my life, ruin my life in any way. Back then. Back then, every audition was like, you know, the end of the world. It's like, you've got to do this. Oh, when I couldn't get into Miss Saigon, I remember just, sobbing, going, if I can't be cast in Miss Saigon, what am I gonna do? You know, like, there's no parts. You know, and my roommate just would like, look at me, roll his eyes, and go like, there's other shows, you know? And I'd be like, yeah, okay. I couldn't see then that I was no Miss Saigon. You know, I'm not gonna be a bar girl in Miss Saigon. <laughs> I tried super hard. But you know, they were like, dance like a bar girl. And I was like, I dance like a girl dancing at a bar, which is not <laughs> the same thing, you know. You're not gonna get that part with a Laura Ashley dress. Either. Well, no, but, I mean, but... at that point we were, we had moved oh, on okay, good. to like cigarette pants and a little <laughs> <clears throat> blouse, but whatever. Yeah, no, even now I watch like the girls in Emoji Land who are going in for auditions. Mm -hmm. We have big discussions. What are we gonna wear? You know, like mm -hmm. this one girl went in for a Moulin Rouge column and it was like bra and a sheer shirt. And I just remember thinking like, that is so, for that age, that's exactly the kind of stuff mm -hmm. we'd be trying to do. You know, I'm way past that age now, thank God. Well, thank God. And you can look back on it and say, this is what it was, and right. this is where I am now. now. People don't want desperation. 
they want to know that they can work with you, that you can't be desperate for it. You just got to say, go in. Mm -hmm. And if you get it, great. And if not, then you move, just move on. Right. It's a hard lesson to learn for most people. I guess, but I'm so used to not getting it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this point it's like whatever let's talk about something that you did get okay. which was how did Avenue Q come to you well Avenue Q was a very special kind of process because that show we developed together in a as a group for a very long time I was part of an original group of actors that included the puppeteers and it was literally like you know how the BMI workshop does like little presentations mm -hmm. of shows like Smokers, they're called, and you know they might do three songs from a show or something. And Bobby Lopez and Jeff Marks had written this these songs in BMI Workshop, and they were literally like, "Does anybody know an Asian actress? We need one to sing this song." Everyone's a little bit racist, and Amanda Green was like, "I know somebody," and we had gone to college together, so she gave them my phone number, <laughs> and I literally was like, "They were like, hi, we're two guys you never heard of." Do you want to come and learn this song and sing it? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. And then, you know, we, we presented the song, and I listened to their other material, and I thought, these guys are geniuses. This is really funny. And I never think that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I really like this. And so, you know, we all got along, and the next time they did like a table read of some scenes or whatever, I was there and I sang all the same songs I'd always sung and read the part, and we all had such a good time. It just kept happening. Was Christmas Eve evolved as they wrote? I mean, they kept adding songs for you? Oh, and... no, not adding songs. Oh, okay. But Christmas Eve, the character, of course, evolved in every version. We had versions where, you know, they, Christmas Eve and Brian ran a deli. Christmas Eve and Brian, I mean, like we had every job in the book. You know, Brian certainly had every job in the book. He's a barista, we're this. It was just sort of like trying to figure out what made the most sense for that neighborhood and those mm -hmm. situations. How many years from the time you did the BMI workshop uh -huh. to when you opened at the vineyard? Three. Three years. Yeah, we did, we did that first reading in 2000. How much input would Bobby and Jeff take from everybody? I think a lot, actually. We really worked on that together. We went up to the O'Neill in O2, I think, and worked on it there. And you know, we're change, you're changing it every day. They're, they're basically trying to gauge response from the audience members and the other people up mm -hmm. there. And we were there all week. The whole point of it was to keep messing around with it. So we did. And you know, Amanda Green wrote, I can't even get a taxi. It was her idea to say that. You know what I mean? So it's like the show has input from like a, all the people that ever touched it. And it was because my husband is a consultant that Jeff Woody decided to make Brian a consultant at the end of the show because it was one of those jobs that nobody really knows what it is. <laughs> you know. I can tell you from the first time I saw Avenue Q, the person is here right now who took me. And it was being transported back to... Well, not, my child wasn't racy like that, but, <laughs> but the puppets right. and my connection to Sesame Street sure. and Electric Company and even Mr. Rogers and the familiarity of who those monsters were, at least for me in my life, still there's so much heart and beauty and there's so much in that show. I mean, you go from zero to 60 and then it's just so... It's so well-constructed and beautifully it's made. It's tight as a drum. There's no, like, kind of, like, lull in it. Right. <laughs> it just plays beautifully. It's beautifully, it's beautifully written, you know. The guys did an amazing job. And just being smart enough, you know, because they had conceived it as a TV thing. Oh, I didn't know that. To have, like, the puppets sing and the humans interact and stuff. But we kept presenting it, like, on a stage. And then somebody went, like, there's something really interesting in that, watching the puppeteers do what they do so brilliantly mm -hmm. and seeing people interact with them as opposed to like, we're hiding behind a wall and you see yes. you know, my head and your head, you know what I mean? So I think there was, it was just like the perfect storm of like brilliant ideas, you know, where the producers who came to see the presentations that we did were like, oh no, it could work on stage. And then the boys realizing how connected the audience felt to the puppets, you know, because it's like all you look at it and like in one second you're back in childhood. 
and the level of trust and familiarity and connection is so deep. It's like you barely have to do any work at all. You know, he walks in, he goes, my name is Princeton. And you're like, okay, you know, yeah. you're just, you're right buy there. buy it immediately. You're right there with him. Mm-hmm. And it's so, you know, I've seen it. I've, I did it in London for six months. People from all over the world, like, you know, would come to that stage door. I listened to the CD and I had to come, you know. It's, it's like amazing. That show will never die, will never go out of style because it's so universal. There's always going to be a young kid moving to New York. And it makes complete sense that these monsters are living amongst everybody in Avenue Q. And your character, you know, talking to Kate Monster just as if she's... She's my neighbor. And you buy it. Yeah, totally. And as incredible as Stephanie and, and John are, they, their brilliance is in the fact that you're still watching them, but you're... You're looking at the puppet. Your focus is on the puppet. You're supposed to. Yeah. You know, it was very hard for Jordan Gelber and Natalie Belcon and I to look only at the puppet, not at the puppeteer. Mm-hmm. You know, as actors, we're so used to, like, looking in their eyes, looking mm-hmm. in their eyes. It's like, forget it. I cannot look at her. I'm looking at her hand. You know what I mean? And after a while, it became so second nature, you know? And I knew that if, like, I went off eyeline a little bit, that Stephanie's face would look exactly like Kate's. Do you know what I mean? Like, she would be doing all the acting on her face. Do you know what I mean? So I was just like, all right, it doesn't matter. I'm going to talk to Kate. And I know what Kate's giving me. And I, you know, I just thought it was so special, that whole way that played out. You know, so much of the clips are on YouTube. And, you know, I can kind of get doing research for an artist, I can go down that YouTube black hole for sure. hours and hours. You just keep kind of digging through Anne Harada land for you know London and New York, and you you are you're watching Stephanie and John. They are doing the same exact things with their hands and their face. They become one. It, yeah. It's incredible. Christmas Eve's love for Kate Monster, and they are such. And so it sounds so odd. They're such good friends. Oh, of course. They're such good friends. They're such good friends. But you brought that reality to life. Yes, Stephanie, of course, did. But you're the one that has to interact with that puppet and make her your very dear friend. Yeah. And it it just works so beautifully. Thank you. I'm very proud of that show. I mean, I don't... It's changed all of our lives so dramatically. And... I loved it the best when we were just starting and we thought it was funny and we didn't know if anybody else thought it was funny, but we hoped so. Mm. You know, that first run at the vineyard was the most thrilling time of my life. Talk about it. I'd love to hear about it. Well, just in terms of, you know, you've been developing a show, doing it like at the O'Neill or like at table reads or little presentations in front of producers, but you've not got to put it in front of people. And to have that set that looked just like Sesame Street and to put it in front of real people, to hear them respond to these puppets and to you, what you're doing with them, it was so magical. It really, I just thought, this is, I'll never be this happy again. It reminded me of watching Little Shop of Horrors for the first time off-Broadway when I was young because it had that same sense of like, this is a world that we all no, you know what I mean? But, and it, it's different, but like we love it and we want to be a part of it. Magic. Yeah, it's magic. And Avenue Q is magic like that. And what surprised me was that there were so many actors out there that wanted to be puppeteers, that had always wanted to be puppeteers. When they saw Avenue Q, it was like the light went off in their head and went like, that's what I'm gonna do, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We were very lucky that we were able to find so many actors over the years to play, you know, play these roles, which are very difficult. It's very difficult to puppeteer. Oh, you know. Remind me of the two. Oh, uh, yes, Rick and Jen. Rick and Jen. Yeah. Rick and Jen played. Trekkie Monster. Trekkie Monster. And Um, Nikki. (laughs) Yeah. And the back work that they had to do. Oh, yeah. And it just looked exhausted. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's partner dancing, you know. They were so in tune with each other. One is the right hand, one is the left hand, you know. You really have to be, you have to know that person so, so well. So well, and where they're and going. where they're going. Yep. What was it like to bring it, uh, you, you mentioned London. It was such a thrill, are you kidding did me? You have, did they have to change anything in terms of we, London? Yeah, well, you know, 
Sir Cameron Macintosh was determined that Gary Coleman should be played by a man. <laughs> oh. So he was. And we, you know, we changed the keys and it was fine. No, that was the biggest change. And we went back and forth on, are they going to understand who Gary Coleman is? Are they going to, you know, there were lots of little things we had to change, like Long Island iced teas meant nothing to them. So we had to come up with another terrible sounding drink. Like Which was? Absinthe daiquiris. Yeah, that sounds awful. Yeah. And we had to change the line about, um, you know, oh, don't you tell, you tell. Polish jokes or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. like, well, sure I do. We had to change all, all those kinds of things so that they made more sense for Britain. But it worked. But it totally worked. They loved it. They loved it. They loved it. And they understood who Gary Coleman was. They see American TV just like us. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know. You know, we just went back and forth. Should we change the name? Should we make it a different thing? Should we like, yeah. They got it. They got it. <laughs> I want to touch on Pacific Overtures. Oh, yeah. Which I got lucky enough to see and such a fan of the show. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like working on the show and to work a, a Sondheim show? Well, obviously Pacific Overtures is a very important show kind of historically, and I, of course, had never seen it because it had only been done on mm -hmm. Broadway like in the 70s. Yeah, which it was a, didn't do well. No, it was a kind of historic flop. Yeah. But like you could tell from the pictures that it was very grand and like it, yeah. you know beautifully produced and it was at the Winter Garden, so you knew it was huge and all that kind of stuff. And then of course to audition for the John Doyle production, you knew it wasn't going to be that. It was going to be very stripped down and you know very basic. And I thought, okay, well that's interesting. And also that he was going to put women into the picture because of course Pacific Overtures originally was all men. Kind of like kabuki style. Mm -hmm. So they were looking for an older woman, and I auditioned, and I actually didn't get the part, but the woman who got the part couldn't do it, so I got it. And uh, <laughs> I was like, great. And when we started rehearsals, you know, we were all terrified, but we just concentrated on trying to make it sound as good as it could with as many people as we had. How uh, many people total were in the cast? Hmm, that's a good question. It didn't seem like that many. Maybe didn't like, feel like that many. No, maybe like saw. a dozen or so of us um, trying to do this gigantic show. And John was always very, in rehearsals, it became all about like, how can we show what we're trying to do like in the simplest way possible? And so it was very interesting to take this sort of pageantry kind of show and break it down to make it just about like, let's focus on the relationship between the two guys. You know, I think about it and I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense because that's the way to make audiences get into the show easier. If you make it about the friendship between the two guys, then you don't have to worry so much about like there's no boat. <laughs> yeah, because you're focused, it's you're just about the relationship. Right, exactly. Was it John Doyle? I mean, he's been here and... He's great. Uh, he is great. So um, calm. Yes. And just, I mean, even sitting here, I just... I, he could have told me to do anything, I would have done it. Right. Like he just, he's such a calming presence. And he has a vision, you know, and I'm the kind of actor, I like a general. I don't, I don't like it when you make me do all my stuff. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, does anybody have any ideas? Well, yes, I do, but you tell me what you want first, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about what my ideas are. And that's exactly what he that's does. That's what he is, yeah. Like, I like a guy with a vision, or a girl with a vision, that knows in their heart what they want the play to be. And then you can sort of put in your own two cents as you need to. Bart Shear is like that. There's some directors that are just, they know what, they have it in their head and they're gonna make you see it and then you go, okay, this is what it is. What about the directors that, I'm interested in your point of view about the ones that don't have a vision and aren't a general. How do you as an actor, an artist get around that and what do you do as an actor? When you, that doesn't happen. You can only kind of rely on your own instinct. You know, if they're the kinds that are like, well, show me what you think. Then you're like, okay. And you basically play the scene as, you know, kind of like as straightforwardly as you can. And then they'll either go, well, I like that or I don't like it. And then you have to kind of take it from there. But it's usually easier if you have a, a hint of where they want it to go. 
you know. But sometimes you might not get that. No, lots of times you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find that more common in theater or or in TV film? Oh, absolutely in theater because TV and film, it's so prescribed by what the camera sees and what needs to happen that way. And so quick. Yeah, so quick. I feel like when I do TV and film, we never rehearse. You know, you just show up with your lines learned and then they tell you, you sit here and that guy sits there. Midway through, you get up, you do this. I mean, you know, it's, you don't practice. There's no rehearsal. There's no rehearsal or very little. Mm -hmm. You know, it's basically, oh, for camera blocking, why don't you get up and go over there and do the scene? But not because you need to do it, not because you need to justify it for yourself. You know, and you barely meet the other person ever until you show up on set. I think film and TV acting is very difficult that way. The great thing about Smash was that because we were there, I mean, because I kept coming back so much of the time, Mm -hmm. you know, we actually did have relationships with each other. So for listeners that don't know, on Smash you played Linda, the stage stage manager. Yes, And you did quite a few episodes. Way more than I ever thought I would. They just kept saying, like, and then Linda's appears. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I couldn't believe it. I was supposed to be on for four episodes. And then they just kept writing me in. So I would show up, and they would pay me. That's really what happened. I had no, I wasn't under contract. I had no idea if I was going to be in one episode to the next. But I just kept hoping they would write me in so that I would have an excuse to show up. What was a great experience about about Smash. Oh, you would, the idea that you would get to come back to a set. Like, usually when you go and you shoot a TV show, it's like, okay, hi, and then you'd shoot it, and then you're like, see ya, you never see anybody again. To be able to come back day after day to the same set, and to kind of see how the cinematographers work, and to see how the directors work, and your other actors, I was like, it's like a whole new world, you know? It's like, Uh, It was fascinating, especially people who had done a lot of TV, to watch them work, to see what they did. You know, I really have very very little experience working in TV. TV. And so just to be able to watch somebody like Jack Davenport, who was second nature to him, and how he handled situations, I loved it. I loved it. And you just got to kind of sit next to Jack and Angelica Houston and just be... Surrounded by, you know, greatness, surrounded by people who knew what they were doing on screen. Watch them try to respond, you know, in a normal way and keep going. It was lovely. And you say you think that Angelica thought you're, that you actually maybe were a stage manager. That you know, I think she Linda. actually thought my name was Linda for a really <laughs> long, for a really long time, you know, which was fine. I don't care. She's Angelica Houston. Yeah, Call me whatever course, you want. Yes. I don't, fine, you know. She was always very lovely to me. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, my she goodness. Seems that way. No, Thank you for not bursting my bubble about oh, what no. kind of person. Well, like sometimes you hear, oh, not that you'd say it on here, but oh, what a monster. But <laughs> I mean, you know, it, you know, sometimes when you sit with working actors and you kind of ask, oh, what was this experience like? And they'll be like, oh, that person was so horrible to everybody. It's nice to hear that, how lovely she was. Oh, no, she's an angel. She really was sweet. How about, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Bernadette Peters, also nice. Oh, that's nice to hear. Someone in our audience has a question. Yes, please. I'm Tanya. (laughs) I just moved here from Wisconsin for, well, in October, and this is my first audition season, so all of that, all of your personal experiences and advice really hit me. Like, it was something that I needed to hear because it's so easy to compare yourself to everyone. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. And uh, I actually asked Leslie this the last time I was here. So I'm a part of a Broadway crew, and one of our shows is Emoji Land. And we flyer the TKTS line, and we give pitches about the show, like trying to get people to come. Do you have one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I would just stress that it's a fun, you know, it's, uh, that it's a fun romp through a world full of emojis, but that there's also heart to it, that it's also kind of like about love and okay. all the big things too. You know, it's, I, it's so hard because it sounds so dumb and it's, it's so hard to explain to people. But, you know, once you see it, it becomes obvious that it's really kind of an old fashioned musical in a very new fashioned box. That's sort of how I think of it anyway. 
You know, because I, I do sort of feel like it's like a little shop or, or something where you get sucked in. Uh, the music's so great and the people are fun, but there's also a very big heart to it. Yeah, and you don't think you get sucked in either. No. By the end, no. you're like, oh, here I am. Thank you. Um, my name's Tina, I'm sorry. I didn't okay. start that part. I think it's interesting because I wanted to be an actor when I was younger and I wasn't encouraged when I was a child, so I didn't. And then I waited until about 10 years ago. So I don't have as many of the disappointments. So I really do plan to stick it out like you're, you're saying. And it's the type of thing, and I think you'll agree, that um, you plan to do it until you die, in a way, once you start doing it. And as long as you're physically able to, and you can learn the lines and everything. Right. So. Um, I mean, even now, I'm thinking, should I retire in 10 years? or something, because even now, I'm slower to learn the lines mm. than I used to be. When I was in my 20s, I could learn anything so quickly, you know, make a set, you know, during the day and run another show at night, that whole experience. Now, oh my gosh, it takes me so much longer. <laughs> and it just, it just hurts me because I'm just like, well, this isn't getting any better <laughs> as I get older, you know what I mean? But I love performing, and I sort of feel like if I can still make the time constraint work, then I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. You know, I just keep thinking at some point, I'm not going to be able to remember all those stupid lines on a TV show. <laughs> I was like, blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, it's bad enough for the audition sometimes. And they're like, are you going to be off book? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> and I think like, so, and I've seen friends of mine, you know, kind of age out in a way. But I'm hopeful that I'll still be able to sort of stick it out for a few more years. I hope so. I know it's tough. It's hard to say. Who knows, you know. But good for you, you know, for, like, deciding to be an actor. It's scary. It's super scary, especially if you haven't been doing it for a long time. At some point, I just sort of hit the thing where I was like, well, if I could think of anything else I could do, I would, should probably do it. But I couldn't think of anything else. Kudos to you for that. We didn't get the opportunity to talk about falsettos. Oh, well, Falsetto Land, that was the half that we did, the Asian American Theater Company. For the transport? You did it through transport or Asian American? No, Asian American Theater Company, um, it was an all Asian production of Falsetto Land, which is the back half of Falsetto. Right, and you played Trina. I played Trina, yeah. You are able to actually, on YouTube, there's. Oh dear, is there? Yeah, oh, of, no. of clips of you singing, you know, holding to the ground. Oh dear, and, okay. What do you mean? It's incredible. I loved that show. I mean, we all we were all very, very good friends who, who did that show together. And so to be able to tell that story and have that relationship with each other already was very, very, you know, sweet. It's like we, were, we, we lived and breathed that show. We loved it so much. Yeah, this is the, the theater that it yes. ran for so many years. Yes. It's an iconic, incredible show. That oh, it's the greatest show. The it's, I, I think it's Bill Finn's greatest work. I love it completely. As a comedian, I mean, you're also extremely funny and very, very quick, especially. What do you think, I ask this a lot of, of comedic actors, do you think your comedy is something that you're born with, it's incredibly innate, or you feel like it's something you can learn? I think the sense of what is funny is something that is born in you. Do you know what I mean? The ability to see something, recognize it, that it's funny, and then try to communicate that to other people is born in you. I think you can learn anything. I told the story uh, before, but it's when I saw my kid be in the eighth grade Sound of Music at his school, okay, he played Max. He did this thing where he walked across the stage, stopped, pointed to the audience, delivered his line, got his laugh, and kept going. And I thought, who are you, Nathan Lane? Like, like, who taught him that? Did he just get it out of the air? Did somebody actually say, no, you walk, no, you point, no, you say you're, oh, and then you go. That's not something I ever said. That's not, my biggest piece of advice for him was like, speak loudly because the acoustics in that room are terrible. <laughs> and if they can hear you, they'll like you. That was basically right. my biggest piece of advice. Well, that's what you say to an eighth grader. Yeah, right. it's like, just be loud, dude, it's fine. But he was so funny, and I was just like, oh, okay, he understands. There's something about him that intrinsically understands, like, 
what's funny and what plays. Now, I would say that I learned, you know, I learn about funny from having worked with some of the funniest people ever. You just, it's impossible not to work with Harriet Harris and not learn about funny. Yeah, it was a genius. Genius, genius. And I, I love making people laugh. I think it's the purest kind of like recognition you can have. When I write a joke and it lands, that to me is the greatest feeling in the whole world. I bet. Even when I'm telling somebody else's joke and it lands, I like that too, but it's, it's really good when it's like, I thought of something. <laughs> <laughs> as we kind of close up here, you as an artist and actor, you go back and forth between Broadway and off-Broadway so often, and you don't kind of distinguish, oh, I'm on Broadway, I'm gonna stay there. You go back and forth. Who you, could? You make that face, but I mean, who could, many people... Who could make that decision? I mean, Bernadette Peters could. Patti Lapone. Come on. They're in a totally different stratosphere. You know, I'm a working actor. I feel like you take the jobs that come to you. You don't necessarily have a choice sometimes, or you, I mean, you always have a choice, but I mean, you don't necessarily kind of know which job is gonna like come down the pike. And you're only, t you're taking the work that you think is the best work that's available to you. Who would ever say like, oh no, I'm gonna only do Broadway. You know, Good point. or off Broadway. <laughs> That's like it's ridiculous. If you, if you're excited about a project, if there's some reason that you find compelling to do it, do it. Who cares? Who cares where it is? You know, I like to think that we've really sort of gotten around all of those ideas of what the is. Stigmas. Yeah, it's like to me, if the show is a good show, it's a good show. I don't care. I don't care if it's here in that garbage can down the street. It doesn't matter. You know, and people, especially now, can make their own work so much more available. And I think that's, that's all to the good. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much Thank for you your time. So much. Thank you for your, your honesty and your candor. I think anybody listening to this as an actor is really beneficial. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel. Brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Foundation. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and press by Chris Kanarik. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown, house manager is Charles Shipman, box office manager is Daigoro Hirahata. Social media is Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz. Live at the Lortel is recorded at the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Bryant Falk and Abacus Entertainment. <laughs>